Our text this afternoon is from Matthew 14. Matthew 14, the verses 22 to 33. We will read those now. Immediately, he made his, the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sure that many of you have been directly involved in the teaching of your children, especially in these extraordinary times. Back in March, April, or May, you may have found yourself teaching them all kinds of things, English, geography, math, and maybe science, art, or music. And perhaps you've discovered that teaching is not easy. Children can be quite resistant to learning. So we must consider our methods carefully. Learning is a process. Repetition is required. Lessons begin with the basics, the fundamentals, and eventually they increase in complexity until the student is brought to a sufficient understanding. And our methods, they have to suit the subject. Some things are better demonstrated with an example than with an explanation. Our methods also have to suit the student. Children learn differently from one another. Some learn better by discovering things for themselves. Others need to be shown the way step by step. And our teaching has an aim. We teach towards something, towards the application of knowledge, towards a specific task, or towards a specific profession. We do not merely upload the facts and call the job done. Now, when we read the Gospel of Matthew, these same principles can be observed in the interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus was a teacher, and they were his students. And he was preparing them for a special task. 
Because of this emphasis as, on Jesus as a teacher in Matthew, it's not surprising that Matthew records him performing many of the same miracles. Jesus taught by repetition. One miracle is followed closely by a similar miracle. One parable is followed by another and another, either to reinforce the same point or to teach a slightly different aspect of the same truth. And Jesus taught with authority. Often his sermon was accompanied by a parable or by a sign. And sometimes a parable or a sign was given without an explanation. Many times the crowds did not understand its meaning. And sadly, they often seemed satisfied with not understanding. They were happy to receive the sign and skip the lesson. But we know that Jesus taught his disciples differently than the rest of the people. For example, a sign that was left unexplained to the crowds was often a specific lesson for the disciples. The disciples were being prepared for a special task. They were the future leaders of the church. And so they were taught by degrees, little by little, lesson by lesson, by lecture, by example, and by experience, until they came to a sufficient understanding of who Jesus was. And only after they had a grasp of the fundamentals, the basics, who Jesus was, would he begin to teach them more directly about why he had come. And likewise, the Holy Spirit teaches us, little by little, as we follow the progress of the disciples through the Gospel of Matthew. So this, this afternoon, we will see how Jesus brings his lesson home by sending his disciples out on their own. Our theme for this afternoon is Jesus makes himself known by saving his students from the storm. We will see how they are first separated from a time, second, how they are reunited by faith, and third, we will see how they are saved, they are delivered for worship. So first, Jesus and his disciples are separated for a time. Our passage begins on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had been preaching and teaching in this region in northern Israel for some time. But things now were beginning to change. And from an earthly perspective, it wasn't going so well. Two events laid side by side in Matthew make this clear. On the one hand, at the end of chapter 13, in chapter 13, verse 53 to 58, we can read that Jesus had been rejected by the people of Nazareth his own hometown. The people closest to him were offended by his teachings. And on the other hand, just before the events of our text, Jesus had received news that John, John the Baptist, had been killed by Herod, the governor set up by the Romans to rule over the province of Judea. And hearing this news, Jesus, together with his disciples, they stepped into a boat and crossed the sea in search of solitude. As he sometimes did, Jesus sought a quiet place to pray. 
a desolate place, as it says in chapter 14, verse 23, a place where people wouldn't normally have a reason to be, a place away from the crowds. But the people followed him. They followed him on foot around the lake until they found him on the other side. And there Jesus had compassion on them, and he teaches them for the rest of that day, and he healed their sick. And close to the end of the day, Jesus showed them his divine power. As the people watched, he blessed a few loaves and a couple of fish, and he fed the whole company, 5,000 people. And they were astonished. They marveled at his power. But as we read in John 6, verse 15, they did not understand the full significance of this sign. All they saw was a powerful man. He is a prophet, they said, a possible king, an earthly king for Israel, someone to save them from the oppression of the Romans. Now, this was a popular misconception of who Jesus was. And the disciples were also prone to this thinking. Many times they betrayed this same ignorance. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, they knew his power. They had seen many miracles. And they knew that he had come from God, as a prophet might. But they did not fully understand who he was or why he had come. And what follows in our text, we recognize the same pattern of teaching that Jesus had used in the past. First, he performs a miracle for the crowd and for the disciples. And then, immediately, as it says in our text, immediately he sets the disciples apart for a second lesson. In order to teach them the meaning of the miracle, he separates them from the crowds. What they would experience on the lake, on the Sea of Galilee, would confirm the lesson that they had already received on the shore. After the meal, things move very quickly. While the teacher disperses the crowd on foot, he compels the, the disciples to leave by boat. Now, the word that is used here in the original language makes it clear that the disciples were hesitant to go. They didn't want to go without Jesus. The text does not say why. Perhaps... They were concerned for his safety from the crowds. That's the impression we get from John. Or perhaps they were concerned for their own safety. As former fishermen, they knew that the Sea of Galilee was notoriously unpredictable in the spring. Because of the extreme difference in altitude and its close proximity to the Mediterranean Sea, a violent storm could rush down the western slopes without warning, especially at night. Nevertheless, Jesus sends them off, and they demonstrate their obedience by setting out onto the lake. Now, one of the striking things about Matthew's record of this event is how similar it is to the earlier story, the earlier story that we read in chapter 8. And perhaps you noticed some of these similarities. The setting is the same, the Sea of Galilee. A storm rises just as quickly and threatens to overturn the boat. The cry of the disciples then is similar to the words of Peter in our text, Lord, save me. And Jesus' rebuke is identical. O you of little faith. At that time, the disciples had learned the importance of attaching themselves to Jesus. 
he had demonstrated his power, real power, over the wind and the waves. And at the end of it all, they were left wondering, as it says in chapter 8, verse 27, what kind of man is this? But today, this afternoon, we're interested especially in some of the differences between these two passages. And one difference immediately stands out. While previously Jesus was asleep in the boat in chapter 8, this time he is entirely absent. After dispersing the crowds and sending the disciples away, Jesus continues on alone. It's emphasized twice in verse 23. There it says in verse 23, 14 verse 23, He went up onto the mountains by himself to pray, and when evening came, he was there alone. And in the text, this, his quiet solitude is strongly contrasted with the state of the boat. Initially, the disciples had made good time. They had advanced several kilometers into the lake. John writes that they were near the middle of the sea. So when the wind struck, they found themselves far from shore. They were also alone, a lonely boat at the mercy of the winds and the waves. So at the end of verse 24, we see each group going their separate ways. The crowd, the disciples, and Jesus. The crowd is dispersed along the shore after receiving a sign that they did not understand. The disciples obediently push off into the sea and find themselves in the middle working against the prevailing winds. Their boat was battered, it was tested, tormented by a heavy sea and opposing winds. Stuck straining at the oars, undoubtedly the disciples yearned for the presence of Jesus. The presence of the very one who had before shown his power over the wind and the waves. Why had Jesus left them alone? Brothers and sisters, I want to pause here for a moment and ask you this. Can you identify with this situation? How often don't we feel the same way? Obedience to God's will often leads us to places we don't want to go. It may direct us to do things we don't want to do. It might set us on a difficult path. It might put us in a predicament. How often in this life doesn't it feel like we're at the oars rowing against the wind? We work hard day after day to gain a little ground, but it's difficult to save up for that down payment when you're obliged to church, to school, and to charity. We fight and we fight against that stubborn sin, but we never seem to make any progress. We try and we try and we try again to restore that broken relationship, but nothing ever seems to come of it. In this fallen world, all our efforts, our efforts to overcome sin, to restore relationships, to live as God directs, all our efforts, they often seem so futile. Difficult. Harder than it should be. And so it was with the disciples on the open sea. They were in danger. A chance of an evening storm in spring was rather high. And the risk of death was very real. But rather than reason with Jesus about acceptable risk, or try to explain to him how difficult the crossing might be, 
They simply obeyed their teacher. This is important for us to remember in our daily trials. Obedience to the command of Christ does not guarantee an easy path, an easy crossing. So the crowd had been dispersed and the disciples are on their own, but Jesus also spends the night alone, alone on the mountain. With the coincidence of these two events, the death of John the Baptist and the recent rejection at Nazareth, suddenly the end of his earthly ministry is in view. The inevitability of the cross begins to press down on him. His rejection in Nazareth, those people closest to him, it foreshadowed a final rejection by the nation of Israel. And the abrupt death of John at the hand of Herod was a powerful reminder of the hostility of the world against the message of the gospel. Jesus' earthly ministry was coming to an end. And so he sought his father in prayer. He would soon have to suffer, die, come back to life, and ascend into heaven. The time was coming when he would no longer be on earth with his disciples. And they would, be, they would need to be ready to take up the task that was appointed to them. So we see that this trial that was experienced by the disciples on the sea, apart from Jesus, was for their good. It was for their instruction. Although only separated from Jesus for a short time, they were being prepared for when they would no longer be, when, for when he would no longer be with them on earth. But first, it was important for them to grasp the fundamentals. And they needed to know, they needed to experience who Jesus was. They needed to be reunited with a new understanding. This is our second point. Reunited by faith. If we turn back to our passage, back to verses 25 and 26, we quickly learn two things. First, we learn when Jesus came to the boat, and second, we learn how he came. Jesus came to them in the fourth watch of the night. Now, a watch was a Roman way of reckoning time in the night. The fourth watch was the last watch, and it referred to a time just before sunrise, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Jesus came to them early in the morning, which means, of course, that the disciples had worked against the wind for most of the night. And how did he come? In case there is any doubt, the miraculous nature of his approach is clearly attested in the text. This is clear in two ways. First, the word that is used for walk in the Greek, peripateo, it refers to walking around by foot. It doesn't mean to go or to come in a general sense, but specifically to walk, to walk on foot, one foot in front of another. And second, this phrase is repeated twice, both in verse 25 and in verse 26, and it's repeated in exactly the same way. Jesus came to them walking on the sea, walking on the water. So it is clear that Jesus came to them entirely on his own initiative. He came to help them at his time and in his way. At his time and in his own way. A way 
in fact, most unexpected. So unexpected that they did not recognize him. Help came in the form of Jesus, but they did not recognize him. Now, clearly, they are frightened. Remember, they struggled against the wind for the whole dark night. Never knowing if the storm would get worse, they would have been exhausted. Their minds, perhaps, in a state of panic. Now they see something completely unexpected. It's a ghost, they cry. As Christ's companions, the disciples had seen some amazing things. But this, this was something new. Something they had not seen before. The sudden, unexpected appearance of Jesus and the strange reaction of his disciples reminds us of other times when God appeared to his servants. We can think of many examples in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 6, we can read that Isaiah was also afraid when God suddenly appeared to him in a vision. Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, was confused. He was perplexed when God suddenly appeared to him, not in a storm, not in an earthquake, but in the quiet whisper of a wind. And Moses, in Exodus 3, when Moses saw an unexpected sight, a bush that was burning but not burning up, he was curious, and he drew near to see this unnatural sight. In every instance, God reveals himself at his time, in his way to his servants, to teach them something about who he is. And he does the same here in our text. Revealing himself to his disciples in the person of Jesus, just as he had done in the past. In our passage now, Peter is like Moses. Like Moses, he is being prepared for an important task. Even apart from the rest of the disciples, Peter has a special role to play, both before and after the crucifixion. And just as Moses was drawn to the burning bush and there receives instruction and revelation of God, Peter is, draw is drawn to Jesus and receives a lesson on the nature of faith. It's important to recognize that these verses, the verses 28 to 31, are unique to Matthew. Of all the disciples, Peter's path is perhaps the most difficult. He is often the spokesperson or the representative of the others. Often he's the first to speak, the first to respond. And in almost every account, Peter demonstrates at the same time both his understanding and his ignorance, showing both faith and doubt. And the same is true in our text. As we saw earlier, just as the disciples were separated from the crowd for their instruction to receive a lesson, now Peter is separated from the disciples to receive a personal lesson. Now the question that Peter calls out into the storm in verse 28, it indicates that his fear had already begun to subside. He now knew that Jesus had come to help them. Like the rest of the disciples, Peter recognized the voice of Jesus and he immediately goes one step further. He wants to meet his Savior on the sea. His faith gives him confidence to approach Jesus. 
This desire of Peter is a manifestation of his faith. It is an act of faith. In Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism, we confess that true faith is both a sure knowledge and a firm confidence. And in the actions of Peter, we have a picture of what this looks like. His knowledge of the power of Christ leads to a personal confidence on the water. Peter knows, he has already seen, that Jesus is the master of the wind and the waves. And his desire to be reunited casts out all fear from his mind. So he steps out of the boat and walks over the water to meet Jesus. But his faith is tested again by the wind and the waves and found lacking, insufficient. And so he sinks into the sea. Now, brothers and sisters, if you look at our passage, you'll notice that there's one word in both verse 27 and 31 which characterize the response of Jesus. In both cases, Jesus responds immediately. Immediately, Jesus comforts them with his voice. Immediately, he reaches down to bring Peter up out of the water. He did not come until the time was right, but when he came, then he acts. And he continues his work until his work is done. He comes to help. Jesus comes to save. And he comes with words of comfort. Take heart. Be encouraged. Help has come. I have come. His words in verse 27 are significant. Our English translation is only technically correct. It is often translated as take heart. It is I. But to the ears of a Greek-speaking Jew, these words, they resonate the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Take heart, I am. I am. Moses had received these same words at the burning bush. God had appeared to him and assured him of his help. And what did God say then? He said, I have seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cry of distress. I know their suffering. And I have come to deliver them. After 400 years in Egypt, when the time was right, God acts to deliver the Israelites out of slavery. The book of Exodus, as we looked at this morning, is full of this wonderful work of deliverance. And in a similar way, now, Christ saw the affliction of his disciples as they labored against the wind. As we can read in Mark 6, verse 48, he knew their suffering. And after a long night, when the time was right, he came to deliver them. Jesus comes to save. Brothers and sisters, this is the reason he came into this world. Not merely to deliver his disciples from a storm, but to save all those who belong to him from the guilt of their sin. This is how God works his deliverance. He is faithful, and he comes to us in our hour of need. He is faithful. He comes to us. And we come to him only by faith. Ordinarily, it is impossible to walk on water. Without faith, it was impossible for Peter to come to Jesus. But with faith, the impossible becomes possible. 
And the same is true for us. Faith is what unites us to Christ and makes us share in his benefits. Faith gave Peter the power to look to Christ and to momentarily forget all his earthly fear. And faith gives us the power to look past our earthly troubles, past our struggles with sin, and look to Jesus. It is with the eyes of faith that we see our Lord and Savior, and we recognize him by his word. And Peter's example gives us great encouragement, brothers and sisters, because while his faith drew him to Jesus, it was an imperfect faith. A faith affected by external circumstances. A faith mixed with doubt. This faith, his faith, couldn't hold him up or sustain him. Even this faith, the kind of faith that takes a man out of a boat in the middle of a storm, is insufficient. And that's okay. Because Jesus was near to help. In the same way, dear congregation, when we recognize that our faith is weak, when we are overwhelmed by the cares and the troubles of this world, cry out for help. Pray for help. Cry out to God who is ever near us with the same urgency that Peter expresses as he sinks into the sea. Our spiritual life is at stake. And we know that he will deliver us. As it says in Psalm 107, for all those that cried out to the Lord in their trouble, he delivered them from their distress. So after a time of separation, the disciples are reunited with Jesus. He is faithful. He comes to help. And they are comforted by the sound of his voice, as is shown by the actions of Peter. And they respond in faith. And this brings us to our third point, where we will consider how their fear is now turned to worship. How they were saved for worship. When Jesus steps into the boat, something has changed. The storm is gone. As we read in verse 32, the wind stops. There is a great calm, and the day dawns on a new understanding. Beloved, do you remember the question in Matthew 8? At the end of the first episode on the lake, Perhaps if you have your Bibles open, we can turn there for a moment. Matthew 8, chapter 8, verse 27. There it says that the men marveled. And they asked this question. They asked, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, if you look ahead in that same chapter to verse 29, you'll see an answer to that question. In verse 29, you'll see that title. O Son of God. But that answer doesn't come from the disciples. It comes from two demon-possessed men. And that answer is uttered in fear. But now, in our chapter, chapter 14, at the end of our text, on the same sea, after a similar storm, in the same classroom, you could say, the disciples can answer their own question. Who is this man? He is the Son of God. Now they more than marveled. Now they worshipped. Previously they had seen his power. 
but they did not understand his purpose. But little by little, the disciples were beginning to understand. They were beginning to see the fuller picture. Jesus was much more than a powerful man. He was the Son of God. And this newfound knowledge is soon tested. Two chapters after our text in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16, Jesus asked the disciples two questions. He asks first, who do the crowds say that I am? The answer, a prophet, a powerful man. But then Jesus asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And there Peter makes that remarkable confession. He says, you are the son of the living God. Now the disciples still had much to learn. Peter himself makes that clear soon after this confession. But they finally understood the fundamental thing. Peter's confession, which echoes the words of our text, would become the foundation of their message to the world. So the disciples were saved for worship, but not only the worship that they could bring to Jesus in that little boat. They would take this newfound knowledge to the ends of the earth so that every tribe and every people and every nation might worship Jesus as the Son of God. In this way, the disciples learned that Jesus was God. And they learned that although he was not with them physically in the boat, he was still watching over them. They learned that they were never really alone. After his death and resurrection, Jesus would return to the Father, as we read in John 16. He would ascend into heaven. He would no longer be physically on earth with his apostles. But before he would ascend... Before his earthly ministry would come to an end, he would send his disciples out again. Not out into a storm, but out into the world. And he would send them out with a promise, which we can read in Matthew 28, verse 20. That his eternal power and his grace would always be with them. At his time and in his way, he would send them another helper. Not a ghost, as they thought they had seen on the surface of the water, but the Holy Spirit, a spirit of fellowship who would unite them to him until the end of the age. Jesus, the Son of the living God, is there. He is there even now. He is in heaven, and we are on earth. But he is not far from us. He watches over us, and he continues to intercede before the Father on our behalf. And we know, brothers and sisters, that while we live on earth, nothing can separate us from his love. Amen. In response, let us stand to sing hymn 54, the stanzas 1 and 2. <laughs>